straight from the WCHL studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, 97.9 The Hill presents the Sibling Rivalry Sports Show with your hosts Chris and C.L. Brown. Tonight, the brothers discuss the NFL's hiring practices, have a special appearance from referee Rich, and welcome CBS college basketball analyst Clark Kellogg. And now, your ticket to the backyard brawl, the Sibling Rivalry Sports Show. 2019 2019 i've broken it down for each numeral in that large number the two illustrious brazen brothers hosting this year on demand backyard slash side yard slash the forest brawl zero topics that we see eye to eye on well not really but you know <laughs> brand okay one awesome place to hear the show only on 97.9 The Hill and on demand on WCHL.com. Then the nine out of nine sports-loving dudes and dudettes rate this show as best in class, according to my own personal biased survey. Happy 2019, y'all. It's Sibling Rivalry Sports. CL. Let's get it. College basketball is kicking up. College football is over. Once we get the NFL playoffs out of the way, it'll be all eyes on hoops, which is what I enjoy the most. So, But Exciting we're going to stick with the NFL for right now with the big playback. Yes, we are. So let's go ahead and kick it off. Big playback. This is the big playback. Big playback topic of the week, the first topic of the year. NFL coaching comings and goings. Is this okay? No. <laughs> um, I mean, the NFL is is basically, you you know, I'm, I'm growing. Yes. My animosity towards the NFL is growing each time we even bring up those three letters. And I'm failing as, I'm failing as a co-host because of that. I, I feel like the spirit of the Rooney Rule is being basically just stomped on. I mean, you have you can look at Oakland with uh, their firing of Reggie McKenzie, who was one of only a handful of, of black GMs in the league, uh, to make way for Mike Mayock. Who, How do you fire somebody who got Mac, who brought in Mac? Yeah, I'm just yeah. hello from Buffalo, from University of Buffalo, not from Oklahoma. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, and and Gruden. John Gruden, his his guy all along from from reports was he wanted to bring in Mike Mayock. So, you know, they did that, and and they're just skirting the rule at this point. And then we see uh, Arizona Cardinals. They fire Steve Wilkes after one year as head coach, uh, which I mean, mind you, they they didn't have a good year. But you're also looking at you brought in a rookie quarterback. Uh, what were they expecting to happen this year? Were they expecting playoffs with, with basically playoffs. conceding that they're rebuilding? And so Cliff Kingsbury, I like him as a coach. Uh, he, you know, his his time at Texas Tech, he didn't have a winning record. But for him to be brought in, it, it just it it's kind of mind boggling to me uh, what what these decisions are and and what's going on right now with the NFL. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, they're talking about team president uh, Michael Bidwell of the Cardinals was talking about the lack of competitiveness. I mean, it was their worst record in 18 years. Okay, so what? I mean, no no offense, you know, to Cardinals fans, but I'm just saying 
you you have to reboot at some point. You have to reboot. I don't know. I guess they expected him not to do that. They expected to carry on mediocrity because that's what we had before. I mean, let's face it, right? So what, I don't understand what they like. The CLC. I don't understand what they expected out of Wilkes, and they did not improve it. With what is Kingsbury going to bring to the league? I mean, you know, this is a challenge. It'll be interesting to see. But is he going to bring the air raid to the NFL? The, the air raid. You're not playing North North Texas, you know, uh, community. College. You're playing, you know, teams that have a bunch of top draft picks on their defense flying around the field. The air raid in its purest form, I would venture to say, won't work. And I, I'm curious too. So obviously, we know. Let's not let's not uh, try and candy coat it. Texas Tech isn't a great football job to have. So it is a very difficult job in in a competitive conference, uh, the Big Twelve. Uh, you're always going to be second fiddle to Oklahoma and Texas if you're Texas Tech out there. But Mike Leach had a winning record during yeah. his time at oh, yeah. Texas Tech. Mm-hmm. Like. However he got it done, he was able to get things done that Cliff Kingsbury could not. So I'm wondering, so how how does that translate? Now, I don't believe that you just automatically say somebody had a losing record here, so they're not going to be any good as a head coach anywhere else. I don't I don't I'm not saying that. But we've seen somebody in the same situation who is offensive mind. Why didn't they go after Mike Leach at that point? If that's what you want, Arizona. But, you know, we, we're, we're seeing similar guys. One had more success than the other. Like, I just, I'm trying to find a way to figure out why and how this hire happened, but I can't. I keep coming up short. What do you think about Marvin Lewis, CL? I think he had his time. Um, I think Cincinnati could have moved on. They would have been justified moving on with him before they did and before mm-hmm. it came to this point. Um, he's not somebody who I look at as, you know, up in arms, like, why did they fire him or whatever at mm-hmm. this point. He, they, But I feel like you have to allow a coach some time, some room to Amen. breathe yeah. and build their own culture. And coach build. Dungy said that. Yes, yes. And so like Marvin Lewis had it. So I had no problems with, with how Cincinnati, how they went about firing him. So, okay, so th- then you also have uh, Hugh Jackson as well. All I'm saying is, you know, it, could somebody look at these coaches and kind of group them all together and say, wait a minute now, I see, I see some kind of a trend here what is going on I don't I I don't want to group all of them together because they, mm-hmm. they are they are separate situations mm-hmm. and from obviously I'm not privy to what went on in Cleveland but from thank some God. of the reports I thank God for that yeah, every true, day true. <laughs> for some of the reports that I've heard it seems like Hugh Jackson didn't do a lot of things right just in terms of personal relationships and that that you is think? very important <laughs> you think not just with Baker, Baker Mayfield, Mayfield jogging but, backwards down at the staring him down. <laughs> but yeah, with with you know, an administration in general, it's it's very important to yeah. to kind of be more of a builder than somebody who isolates himself in in uh in those situations. But um I think you do have to look at them piece by piece, but I think where the NFL is failing mm. because I'm not going to sit here and say <laughs> no black coaches should have been fired or whatever. And and if you're hiring more, naturally, you're going to fire more, too. Mm. But Good point. The NFL, the, again, we go back to the Rooney Rule, it's supposed to help a pipeline be established so that there are young guys coming in who interviewed, who, who you know, you know they're interviewing, you know this guy is somebody who has a resume who who should be a next head coach. And I bring up Eric Bieniemy. Bieniemy. Kansas City offensive coordinator. Um, the Chiefs were were 
one of the hottest offenses in the no league doubt. this goes year. Saying. And I, I'm looking at it like it, it, <laughs> somebody needs to be hiring him, right, as a head coach. Mm-hmm. If that's the trend right now that we're looking at offensive minds and offensive coordinators and people trying to find the next Sean McVay, then Eric Bieniemy, when this hiring cycle is done, needs to be the guy. All right, see, now here's a, here's a tough question then. A team like a Cleveland or Cincinnati that had invested in an African-American coach now, going forward for this very next hire, do you say it's the same thing? They need to just go the, stay the course with the Rooney Rule and do it the sa- exact same way? Or do they have a, a less of a, I don't know, a, a responsibility? That's the wrong word. But anyway, do you see well, what I'm saying? Yeah, you, you have to stay. You First of all, the Rooney Rule is just to interview. It's not you have to hire a minority coach. It's mm. just to give the opportunity. So yeah, they they better adhere to the rule that's in place. But I don't think I don't think they should <laughs> they should be like, well, we just hired one guy, so the next guy shouldn't be it shouldn't matter. It should be it should be about fit, of course, but it should also be as long as you're giving somebody a legitimate opportunity to come in and interview as opposed to like the Raiders did. We're just going to skirt this rule. I know who I want. I know who I'm about to hire, but you can come in anyway, Chris Brown, and interview <laughs> for the job, and I'll, I'll sit here and act like you have a legitimate chance to, to land a job. That's what I mean. You can't you can't operate that way. You have to be open. And, and going back to how it got established, I mean, that's how Mike Tomlin got the Steelers' job. Everybody, he wasn't the front runner. He kind of came out of nowhere, got in an interview situation, and blew them away. That's mm-hmm. how he got hired. And mm-hmm. it never would have happened otherwise. He, he would have probably just been a token hire, and it would have been Russ Grimm or uh, I forgot who else was at the time. Uh, your boy uh, who hired who coached the Cardinals. Yes. I can't Ken even think of his name. Yeah. yeah, it would have been one of those guys would have probably been the head coach True. had Mike Tomlin not had that opportunity. So well, now they look back and they don't regret that. So Yeah, it's all about opportunity. That's all I'm saying. Fair enough. Well, going forward, maybe we'll see some correction. There's hope, CL. Come on, man. There's got to be hope, NFL has to change a lot for me. It's been two seasons now. I have not watched the NFL game. Wow. That's long. Although, I mean, you're still a fan, so I understand. Okay. (laughs) After taking that shot, moving forward, we have an excellent guest to kick off the 2019. Clark Kellogg is here from CBS Sports College Basketball. You got to come on back to 97.9 The Hill Sibling Rivalry Sports. Come on back. Welcome back to the Sibling Rivalry Sports Show on 97.9 The Hill Joining us now is CBS College Sports Basketball Analyst Clark Kellogg, Ohio State Buckeye to his heart. Buckeye. <laughs> Had a great career. Welcome to the show, Clark. Hey, great to be with you guys, man. Welcome, I'm welcome. I'm to talk round ball, and we're uh, ramping up with conference play, so a lot of fun. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I wanted to start in the Big Ten with you because we, we had here recently uh, Penn State coach Pat Chambers Got a one-game suspension from the Big Ten for pushing one of his players kind of in a huddle situation. Trying to, He said after the game he was trying to challenge him in that moment, and he apologized to the kid and everything. But back when you played, nobody would have blinked an eye at this. Um, and, and I know Michigan State's uh, Tom Izzo also had some, some thoughts on 
uh, maybe, uh, I guess, the softening of the culture, if you will. Um, did we make too much out of this? Did, you know, should, should Chambers even have been suspended one game, or is it cut and dried that things have changed and under these circumstances no one should put their hands on a player? Well, I don't know if it was ever right to do that, even when it was more acceptable, quite honestly. I mean, we have so much more coverage and scrutiny that you see these things when they happen, but I don't know if it was ever right. It was just more tolerated, and where I land on the suspension is I think it was right, I think it was just, and I think it was fair under the circumstances. Uh, I know there are some others that may differ, but I thought it was right where it needed to land. And again, even in the day I grew up playing in the late 60s, 70s, 80s into my pro career, and obviously the culture was different, the uh, scrutiny was different, in terms of what people are exposed to now through video and social media platforms, but I don't know if it was ever right to put your hands on a young person as you're coaching them. It would happen, but I don't know if it was right, so I'm fine with it. I think it was the right call. Yeah. yeah. Did, did uh, Out of curiosity, did that ever happen to you in a situation? No, 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 no. I never encountered a coach through YMCA, middle school, high school, college, Pro never encountered a coach that um, put his hands on me to motivate me or to get me going or to challenge me. Now, I understand there were some that had that methodology, but again, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's ever been necessary, quite honestly. More accepted, more tolerated, yes, no doubt about it, but I've never thought it was necessary to do that to um, be your best as a coach. Well, Clark, I mean, at, or even as a teacher. Yeah. 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 Well, it's my personal call. Yeah, at some point, point, though, they knew better than to put their hands on Clark Kellogg. <laughs> now, come on, we got to just say no, that. No, I don't know if it was that. <laughs> 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 no, I don't know if it was that. But um, again, that's just my posture on it. And yeah. I think Pat apologized. It was certainly the heat of the moment. You could see it wasn't anything egregious or malicious. Um, out of bounds and out of line, I, I equate it to a flagrant foul. Yeah, That's yeah. what I look at it as. Well, uh, locally, speaking of motivating players, locally we've got a couple of, of elite-level freshmen who, freshmen who have at times struggled this year in Cam Reddish at Duke. Uh, he's currently kind of going through a shooting slump, trying to work his way out of that. And Nasir Little at North Carolina, who – I think it's he hadn't played to where people thought he was going to play. Kind of, kind of the expectations may have been skewed. But how how do you view like if you were coaching now, how would you handle kind of you know these these elite level players who the expectations are so high? And we see what Zion Williamson has been doing at Duke and, and yeah. R.J. Barrett. You have the guys who just live up to it and just kind of seem like they plug in. And then you have the guys who, I mean, they're freshmen, so yeah. <laughs> they they're trying to learn the game and trying to learn all the nuances. And that would be my attempted posture, to be honest and forthright with these kids as I've recruited them. If I was coaching, I've never coached, but if I put on that hat and stepped into those shoes. I would be very honest, and then I would be very careful, at least to the degree that I could, to evaluate kids and recognize that everybody's developmental journey is different. Every program's expectations and opportunities are different. So whereas Zion and R.J. Barrett are doing what they're doing, you've got a number of freshmen out across the country that are doing big-time things, and then you have others who are just going through a little bit more of a normal progression of development. 
and I would tend to try to really focus on the individuality of development, even if you are a five-star player. I was considered one of the top two or three players in my high school class in 1979, and I can recall there being a little hubbub about how I was being played at Ohio State with my shot not as good in the first year in college as it had been in high school and those types of things, and that was 40 years ago. So there's nothing really new under the sun. What we've seen, we'll see again, and what has been, we'll be again. So individually assessing the development of these players is really where I think the coaches have to um, focus, and I'm sure Roy Williams is doing that in the context of what's best for North Carolina's team and the Sierra Little as part of that team. Yeah. How do you think you would have handled Twitter and <laughs> Facebook? I, and... No <laughs> I, no I don't know. I really don't. I mean, that kind of water to jump into theoretically is really difficult. Uh, so I, I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I was highly um, scrutinized and publicized um, in the area where I grew up. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, was one of, again, one of the top recruits in the country that year. I ended up coming to school here at Ohio State. So I was probably as scrutinized as any of these uh, top 25 kids in the last 30 years. And the day and age was just a little different in terms of I actually held a press conference, too, when I made my announcement. It wasn't on ESPN, but it was at the library in our school. So I did get that type of scrutiny and notoriety, um, again, on the 1970-ish scale. Um, Had good parents and good extended family and terrific coaches and other folks around me to um, help me stay on the ground. Um, but there were times when I was probably a little sideways with it all. <laughs> we all had our moments. Hey, Clark, well, now you tweeted out on Wednesday, your tweet said, you must be a beginner before you're in anything else. The heart of the discerning acquires knowledge. The ears of the wise seek it out. That leads into this question that I had for you. How much has the one-and-done, in your opinion, kind of the one-and-done phenomenon changed changed the game? Are, are, are players embracing this thought that, you know, you gotta, you got to learn. you got to have a learning curve. you got to be a beginner. Or are they feeling just kind of rushed and forced? What do you think about that? Um, I think it's a blend and a combination for those that are uniquely gifted and talented and have the potential to be pros at 19 or 20 or 21 that's who we're talking about and it really is a small piece of the pie when you think about the players that will eventually play in the pros and those that can go a year or two or three early Um, that's a small group it's a really small sample size i do think the expectation that if you're a top 10 high school player automatically equates to being one and done as a fallacy. Hmm. It's not always that much of a straight line. There are many pros that were not on anybody's recruiting list coming out of high school or were not top 50 or top 100. Again, it's about the individual journey of development. And so I do think it puts unfair pressure and burdens on the young people that tend to excel in high school and then are expected to be dominant in college and it's almost a given that they should be one and done regardless of what their development is and if you're not developing at a one and done pace then you have the stigma of being a failure 
that to me is distorted and out of whack. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a small sample size, but that's the danger in these expectations running wild. It's about development. Everybody that's an elite middle schooler doesn't make the high school team. (laughs) Everybody that's elite in high school doesn't become a star in college. Everybody that's a top recruit and ends up in college doesn't necessarily become a lottery pick or a pro. So I think that's a disservice when that burden of expectation is placed on these kids and they feel like they've got to rush. And that's not just in sports. That's academically. In our culture now, there's this whole microwave mentality that if you're not getting it yesterday, that it's not gettable. Well, most development worthwhile takes some time. Mm -hmm. And most people, there are exceptions, but most folks go through a process and a period of development to hone their craft, whatever it is, to get to a point of proficiency and excellence. So. Um, I'm disheartened by the fact that some of these kids feel like if they don't go after their first year that they don't have a chance to realize their dreams and fulfill and, and um, take advantage of opportunities afforded through the game. Yeah. Well, we want to switch gears to uh, to talk about some teams now as, as we're okay. cranking up co- uh, conference play. Who do you think right now, who is your number one team in the nation? And does that also mesh with who you necessarily think ha- thinks has the highest ceiling? Oh, interesting. I think those are two different things. I try to group teams. I'm not, um, Duke, obviously, is in that group. Tennessee would be in the group of top teams. I think Gonzaga. Uh, those and, and even Virginia. I think those three or four um, are on a pretty good level. Duke, because of the, the youth of that group, you would think they'll continue to grow in seasoning and experience. The talent is obvious, uh, platinum level. Uh, the energy they play with is impressive. The way they've committed to defend has been impressive. Uh, so I would think they might have the best combination of really high-level talent and upside just because of the youth of that team. And, uh, again, the teams develop at different rates during the season. You know, some teams you see at December – um, hit their ceiling and don't really get better for whatever reason. Other teams that are off the grid and radar right now um, find it. I mean, Michigan was a shot away from not being advancing to the next yeah, yeah. tournament and then played for the championship and got better as the season went on. They hit that run right before the Big Ten tournament last year and just uh, continued to play at a high level. So it's, it's uh, those four I like, um, and I think Duke would probably have the the, the, the highest ceiling, again, because uh, of the combination of talent and the fact that it's really uh, pretty green and, and raw talent. Speak, speaking of Michigan, I, I'm getting off track here a little bit, but, you know, we saw Michigan pretty much uh, decimate Carolina mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in the yeah, ACC yeah. Big Ten Challenge. Do you feel like, is the Big Ten race going to come down to Michigan and Michigan State? Have those two teams kind of separated themselves in that conference? I think as we look at it now, they're the two best teams. I don't think there's any question about that. The rest of the group is really great together when you look at all the other teams, Wisconsin, Ohio State, Nebraska, Maryland, uh, Minnesota, Iowa, Indiana. I mean, you look at the other teams, they're clearly – there's a gap, Michigan, Michigan State, to the rest of the group, and then there's very little gap amongst the rest of those teams and how they develop, how healthy are they, how do guys accept their roles? Do their leaders play at a high level? That's going to dictate where those other teams finish. And if 
in fact, they can knock off on occasion uh, Michigan or Michigan State, but I don't think there's a question that those two teams are the class of the league. And uh, one other conference-related question I wanted to ask you is Kansas. We've seen them lose at Arizona State on the road. Um, they they uh, lost at Iowa State uh, on the road. Is this the year? It seems like they might be a little vulnerable. Is this the year that that Big 12 conference championship streak, it's 14 years straight now, is this the year it comes to an end? Well, I'm going to take a page out of my partner Seth Davis's book. Just keep saying it until it happens. <laughs> he was all over a 16 beating a one in the tournament. I never thought we'd see it in my time as a broadcaster. It happened last year, and Seth was consistently saying it. I do think this is the year that Kansas is going to find winning that title um, the toughest. Um, how they recalibrate after the loss of Azubuki for the season will be interesting sometimes now his presence is huge it's a great loss but sometimes when you're forced to reinvent yourself you can find something that you didn't know you had oh yeah and so we'll see how that plays out but i like what i've seen of texas tech i think iowa state when you talk about teams with the ceiling they had a number of guys key guys injured suspended early on and you look at how they could develop iowa state i'm speaking of that's a team that could continue to grow and get better as the season goes on. I think Gonzaga has some of that, too, because they were without a couple of key guys, Randall and Tilly, I think, who just returned, if I'm not mistaken. And So when you add those kinds of players um, to a really good group, then you can get an injection and a big uplift as you go into conference play and beyond. Uh, But I do think Texas Tech and Iowa State are probably the two top contenders, and I think one of them will emerge as Big 12 champs this year. All right. Well, unfortunately, we, we, we have many interesting ideas that Clark Kellogg has brought up, but we are out of time for this segment. But, uh, Clark, thank you so much for joining us on Sibling Rivalry Sports, and uh, we look forward to, to your awesome and interesting commentary whenever we watch you on CBS. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Clark. Hey, my pleasure. hope we get a chance to do it again um, as we go down the road to the Final Four. Hey, don't, don't. Hey, <laughs> hey, listen, don't say that unless you mean it now, because, you know, you mean it. You'll, be, <laughs> you'll be getting calls every week, my brother. No, I'm just. I look forward to it. Appreciate that. Clark Kellogg, folks. Welcome back to Sibling Rivalry Sports on 97.9 The Hill where we still chill in 2019. It's time to talk college basketball. C.L. Brown, senior writer for TheAthletic.com College Basketball. What say you? What is on your mind? Well, uh, I was at the the Carolina-NC State game on uh, Tuesday night. Uh, Big-time atmosphere. It's always a lot more fun to me when State is, is ranked and in the mix uh, as Carolina and Duke are also right now. And so, I mean, I, I think it's going to be fun the way it plays out. Carolina obviously got the upper hand in game one, but uh, we'll see how this all shakes out. The only disappointing thing is that State and Duke don't play twice this year on this calendar. Hmm. 
Well, so let me ask you something, though, okay? And, folks, true confession time. I, I called CL. He was in the stadium before the game. He had a minute he could talk. And I, I said, CL, I have to admit to you, low confidence for me in, in my Tar Heels, low confidence in the setting with this team all rabid and doing well, low confidence. To which CL interestingly said, interestingly replied, you know what? Too many people are saying that, Chris. I think I'm going the other way. I think Carolina might be able to come in here and do this. And he was right. Question, though, can the Tar Heels be trusted to keep doing what they're doing? I mean, as much as 18- to 22-year-old <laughs> kids can be trusted. I, I think, really, if you're like me, I think Carolina's loss to Kentucky made you question what you thought you knew about the team. Yes. Because coming off of that Gonzaga win— it looked like, okay, the pieces are coming together. They're hitting on all cylinders. You know, if they hit shots, they're going to be pretty, pretty tough to beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they went out against Kentucky. They lacked a sense of urgency. I think mm-hmm. part of it was Kentucky was kind of playing possum, it seemed like. like well, not playing possum. Really? They weren't good at that point. They weren't right. good. Uh, Coach Calipari, they had, like, their exams at finished, so he had them for as much as time as he needed to to kind of tweak what they needed to get done. And they came out ready. And mm-hmm. uh, because of that, they, they beat uh, Carolina. And, you know, but since then, I think while Carolina still has their flaws— 23 turnovers against against NC State. Um, they they seem like that. they've settled into a groove now, and I would say that they're trending upward. I mean, you, you know, you could say that, okay, winning at Pittsburgh isn't a big deal, but they took control. Like, they didn't play around that game. Mm-hmm. They came in. Mm-hmm. They played at a high level, mm-hmm. was up, what, 22, I think, at halftime, and they, they kept it going. Mm-hmm. And uh, against State, I think what was what was impressive is that uh, you know, and and first let me talk about state because under Kevin Keats they have a level of toughness that the program has lacked in a few years. Hmm. And you know, Sunday they went down to Miami, hmm. trailed by ten, ended up coming back to win that game on the road. Um, and that's why you saw when so, Carolina got up fourteen in the first half, state shook off there. There they were what, zero for eight to start the game hmm. shooting. They shook all that off, came back and tied the game twice. The important thing for Carolina though is. They didn't fold when the game got tight. Mm-hmm. Cam Johnson hit two three-pointers each time it was it was tied. Um, and I think it was impressive that he missed the last 12 minutes mm-hmm. uh, yeah, of, of the game due to cramping. And the bench came through, Leaky Black and Brandon Robinson. And I wrote about that in The Athletic if you'd like to go back and read it. Nice. But um, <laughs> nice the, the one thing I'll leave with is that Carolina's defense seems to be improving, and that's the most important thing for them. Held NC State to 42% shooting from the floor, which was State's lowest this year. So they have another tough game on Saturday when Louisville comes to town. The Cardinals don't have a lot of high-end talent under first-year coach Chris Mack, but they're gritty, they play well together, and they don't hurt themselves. It'll be another tough challenge. All right. Well, come on back. We have referee Rich next here on Sibling Rivalry Sports 97.9 The Hill. Welcome back to Sibling Rivalry Sports on 97.9 The Hill. And our final segment of the day, we're bringing in the right hook from the left coast, co-author of Thunder Sports Network, the book, Rich Hallstrom. Gentlemen, gentlemen, once again, great to be with you. Lots of hot topics this week. We'll have a warm welcome to everybody for the new year. 
great way to kick off the new year. So let's just get started. It is a great way. We're going to do yes, referee Rich. He's going to judge and, and be the ref in these little debate topics. Referee Rich, let's kick it off. Kick your music. Kick some flavor. What you got, ref? Topic number one, straight to the heart. Whose fault is the Antonio Brown debacle? Is it the Steelers or Antonio Brown? You go first. I want to hear your Wait, opinion. you should go first because you're uh, the Stillers. Yeah, which is why I prefer for the second half. <laughs> you won the toss. Okay. Well, uh, let's see how I can say this um, in a gentle way. It's all 84's fault. Antonio Brown, come on. If we hadn't seen a string of, of behavioral um, outliers from this guy, uh, then, then I, I may not be so easy to believe that yet. I, I and he is, you know, still arguably the best wideout in the business, but he's never been shy about that. Now, I don't mind celebration and everything, yet, um, you know, the, the reports of him having an argument and blowing up with, with Roethlisberger and these things and refusing to do this and that, I just say, okay, at some point, you got to put that team first. Antonio Brown is culpable to a certain extent, but I put more of the blame on the Steelers. And and by Steelers, I'm looking at Mike Tomlin specifically. I'm looking at Ben Roethlisberger specifically. And I, I don't know who else would be involved, but those are the two main people I feel like they all need to huddle up. They need to squash whatever's going on and talk it all out because you're only going to do what is allowed if the if the Steelers had it in place where I hate to use the example of the Patriots, but the Patriots have a culture there and players aren't going to do certain things. There's not going to be a Facebook live after a major winner, you know, a game like Antonio Brown did uh, in, in New England. And so Pittsburgh kind of allowed this to fester and grow. And this is what this is what has become of it. And I also think Ben Roethlisberger has pointed a lot of fingers in the past, but he never turns it back on himself. What did I do? What could I have done better? And I think that's what also needs to happen. I think that's part of Antonio Brown's beef. Referee Rich, for the first time in Referee Rich history, I'm about to do something unprecedented. I would like to withdraw my argument. I think I cede to that argument. That is a much better argument, and I agree with that. I'm sorry, Ref. I might have just ruined the content, but I'm telling you, I, I'm going to go ahead and take a knee on that one. No, I think uh, that's very, very wise there, Mr. Brown. I have to give it straight up CL. But I will ask CL a question just so we can wrap up this question. What do you think the Steelers' culture is based on the Rooney family and their history as part of the league? Well, I mean, I, I think Mike Tomlin has basically allowed – he wants men to be men. He he gives you personal responsibility, and he, he gives you a job to do, do your job kind of thing. I, I think what what has happened is that Antonio Brown has failed to live up to that and, and has shown us a certain amount of immaturity uh, throughout, you know, throughout all of this. But um, I, th- I think the culture itself – there's nothing wrong. You don't have to overhaul it totally. Overhaul it totally. You just have to tweak some things to, to rein guys back in. Excellent answer, CL. You get point number one. What is the next question, O-Ref of ours? Question number two, also related to the NFL. Should Joe Flacco have replaced Lamar Jackson as QB in the playoffs for the Ravens at any point 
against the Chargers? A painful, painful question for me personally. So therefore, I must just get myself together emotionally and allow CL to go first. <laughs> you know what? As as hard as I've been on Joe Flacco throughout the years, yes, I think. Harbaugh should have, just as a change of pace, we know the Chargers were playing seven defensive backs in that game. They were geared towards getting faster, quicker guys on the field so they could stop Lamar Jackson's running ability. And Flacco would have been a change of pace. If he comes in, they, they didn't scheme for that. You know, they, they probably wouldn't have been prepared. Maybe they could have caught him off guard. Maybe not. And you put Lamar Jackson right back in. But just as a change of pace, why not? Let's see what happens. Ref, I uh, obviously I differ with this one, and let me just ask a question real quick, a rhetorical question. Why did Joe Flacco not come in these final seven games in spots the way that Lamar Jackson did for the first nine games during the season? He came in in spots. Why did Joe Flacco not do that? There must have, Joe Flacco said that they knew weeks ahead of time what the plan was going into this game that he wasn't going to play. They knew weeks ahead of time. I think weeks ahead of time, Joe Flacco said, if I'm not starting, I'm not wanting to be on the field. I think Joe Flacco is not the biggest team player on earth. That's what I think. Think about Nick Foles. Just think about what Nick Foles did after winning the Super Bowl. Willingly went to the bench, humbled himself. Now he's raised up again. I don't think that bringing Joe Flacco, who's not going to be with the franchise, who is, who is, you know, he could he could do some damage, yes, but he is not the future of this thing. I think John Harbaugh was absolutely right to stay with his rookie, to believe in his rookie, and say this is our future. He needs to learn, like Clark Kellogg was saying earlier. He needs to learn this lesson right now. Let him. Learn learn and hey this we're just gonna roll with it excellent excellent arguments both gentlemen have good points this week but chris i gotta give it to you because i remember one thing that joe flacco said uh in this whole uh story he said it's no fun backing up lamar jack true and you gotta be you got to be a team player so i give Chris, that point. So we are tied one-to-one. Yeah. And you gave me an assist, too, with that other quote. Thank you. What is the final tiebreaker, referee Rich Hallstrom? Okay, the final tiebreaker, but we also may have one more question, depending on time. Does the big win by the Tigers cement Clemson as a national power and major player in the college football playoff for the foreseeable future. Remember that score, 44 to 16. That's not peanuts. <laughs> for the foreseeable future, it depends on how long you determine that foreseeable future. Definitely during this Trevor Lawrence, the next two years, because I imagine he'll be able to go to the NFL after year three, after his junior year. Uh, yes, Clemson is going to be a top three team you know i would imagine both of those years and and should be right back in the college football playoffs i bet but if you're looking overall this is a snapshot of history we cannot be so reactionary as to what's going on in this moment that we lose sight of the the total bigger picture clemson has always been a a great football program uh, you know going back to their first national championship in 81 but I wouldn't I'm not going that far to say, you know, what what if what if Nick Saban 
decides to go to the NFL, takes one of these jobs, or just retires, and Alabama comes calling for Dabo Sweeney. What happens to Clemson after that? I, I think you could say for Dabo Sweeney's era, they are an elite team, but it, a program is about how it continues after one guy. That's a that's an interesting scenario, but before I get into all that, I'm going to go ahead and throw the red flag. Did we not just answer both sides of that question? <laughs> Did he not just say, Referee Rich, I need you to jump well, in here. Well, first, first, first of all, I'm going to throw a red flag on the beginning <laughs> phrase that CL used. That sounded more like a politician <laughs> than a sportscaster. What was that? Now, if you count the era, I mean... Come on. It's a very, very simple question. (laughs) And a major player in the college football playoff for more than just one season. Basically, that's the uh, normal translation for all of us regular folks out there. There's that right hook. Hey, man, I I work with words on a regular basis, so I I have to, I need clarity. And there's some ambiguity that can be taken from that. (laughs) Well... All right. Politics, politics. we got to keep politics out of sports. <laughs> All right. So my, my answer on this one is yes, Clemson, by obliterating, destroying, and embarrassing the what people were saying was the best Alabama team ever, ever. I wasn't saying that. I know you weren't saying that, but... Could you argue that? Could you argue really like, no, no, come on now. Come on now, CL. No. On what grounds? No, no, I mean, could you argue against that? Could you argue against that this was the best Alabama team ever? Yes, that's what I'm saying. On what grounds are they the best Alabama team? You know what? I'll tell you, CL. That's a good question. It's a fair question. Here's what it is. Offense. They are always great defensively, but their offense was one of the top three, I think, scoring offenses and prolific offenses in the nation. They didn't have anybody on that squad better than Amari Cooper when he played for them. Their running backs, I'm not sure. Who was throwing the ball to Amari, though? Who was throwing the ball? Hey, listen, that kid Judy is a bad – I don't want to have to face him ever, like my team. One better than Justin Ross. Oh, no, listen, you, but you're, you're preaching to the choir now because I was going for ACC, baby. I'm just saying for the sake of referee Rich and for the sake of this question, that, that what Clemson did to Alabama, not only were they using some blueprints, but everybody is going to blueprint it now. They see that Alabama has to put their shoes on one shoe at a time, just like everybody else, and they can be punched dead in the mouth. Clemson is elite and they will be for a long time. If, oh, by the way, CL, if, if Alabama comes calling, if Alabama comes calling, Dabo's going to hang up. <laughs> I'm Clemson all the way, baby. To God be the glory. That was a horrible <laughs> Dabo impersonation. That was a, oh, my God. Okay, all right. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to work on it. We want to get into theatrics and uh, performance on stage. Antonio Brown as the as the hippo in the singer. <laughs> Do you, you uh, see that? That, yeah, wasn't, yeah. No, that? that wasn't anything to write home about either, man. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Bobby Brown might want his song back. <laughs> CL's not claiming that one though. No, sir. <laughs> Referee Rich, what say you, sir? That is our that is our time. So what do we what do you think? I gotta give it to I gotta give it to you, Chris, because I'll throw in yeah. this one extra tidbit that Clemson had that excellent performance 
missing three players who were suspended. So Dabo Sweeney has proven that he can build a consistent winner at the highest level. End of case. Ah, that feels good to start out 2019. Referee Rich, thank you so much, man. That money, I promise you, that's on the way. Um, see, I need to hit you up after the after the show. I need to hit you up for a couple bucks. All right. So, uh, yeah, let's. Uh, what what you guys see? Up? Oh, not no, I'm I'm good. Y'all treating me like Eric Reed in the NFL, but look, that's cool. Oh man. Oh man. Okay. Well, Reverie Ritz, thank you for joining us from Seattle. You can find him at MWP Radio Man on Twitter and uh, at Thunder Sports Network. Reverie Ritz, thanks for joining us here on Sibling Rivalry Sports. As always, gentlemen, it's been fun. And watch out for the blitz. There you go. And that's all the time we have here on Sibling Rivalry Sports. We had fun kicking it off, and we're going to keep on doing it. So my name is Chris Brown. I'm C.L. Brown. And this is Sibling Rivalry Sports on 97.9 The Hill.